Hello, and welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast, where we talk about tennis by connecting the present of the sport with its storied past. Be it the nuanced unpacking of the individual stories, long-form interviews, or the detailed tour-level analysis, we have you covered. Hello there. Welcome to Tennis with an Accent, the first episode of the year 2023. The podcast enters the sixth year, I believe. And I have a familiar voice back. Matt Zemek is making his return to the podcasting booth in the Muhammad Ali returning to the ring fashion. So Matt, there were a lot of queries about you. On Twitter, I reassured your fan base that you will be coming back to resume tennis coverage. Happy New Year and just give a little, little rundown where you've been and how you've been. It's been a while. Yeah. So, yeah, hey, good, great to be podcasting with you again, Sakib. Uh, and for people who are listening, I mean, I'm going to make my reintroduction on Twitter so people will get the story directly there. But for those just listening to the podcast, you know, I cover uh, the University of Southern California football team uh, here in the United States. And uh, I've had that job for a couple of years. But a year ago, USC, University of Southern California, was irrelevant. Bad team, played lopsided games. Uh, You know, no one was interested in USC, but then they made a coaching change. Uh, I don't need to go into the details of it for European or Australian or uh, or uh, uh, Pacific uh, uh, listeners, people anywhere else on the planet. But just safe to say, USC became very relevant, very successful, very controversial, uh, much talked about. So for my day job, uh, editing uh, the USC football website, it's called Trojans Wire. Uh, my job got very serious, very intense, very busy, and that is uh, you know, college football season in the United States is is September uh, through uh, early January. So pretty much after the U.S. Open, I had to really focus on USC football. But I will say, uh, and, and that is true, everything that I've said is absolutely true. Like, I'm not uh, uh, exaggerating that. I will also say, like, you know, there were times when, you know, okay, should I at least pop on tennis Twitter for one or two minutes, have a thought about a an indoor fall tournament, about the, the year-end championships or either the WTA or the ATP? And what kept me from doing that, I mean, yes, again, my job was legitimately very, very busy. But I'll also say that with the vaccine controversies we had in 2022 with you know Novak Djokovic not playing in Australia not playing at the U.S. Open uh everything that went on there and of course you know my boycott of Wimbledon for the whole Ukraine Russia uh outrage and and just how bitterly unfair it was and then of course Rabakina wins Wimbledon which kind of made Wimbledon look really foolish I was really kind of fed up with tennis not not the sport but you know the, the the powers that be and also you know, it didn't really feel like a, a genuine tennis season with Djokovic being entirely fit to play, but then not being able to play at a couple of majors. And so, you know, the fall season, like what what was there to really assess in terms of something meaningful? Uh, because we just didn't have everyone playing through the course of the year. I mean, you know, injuries are kind of their own separate thing, like what happened to Zverev. That's a separate thing. Like injuries will happen. But the the Djokovic thing, really, it cast a black cloud over the sport. And so, you know, eh, should I come back to tennis Twitter for a little bit? Eh, it just, you know, it just didn't seem worth the investment, you know, for a, a li- very little bit of time. Like I wouldn't have been able to 
just sit there and be there on Twitter calling matches, live tweeting matches the way I usually do. So better to just make the clean break for several months and then come back here for the 2023 Australian Open. And, you know, Djokovic is back in Australia. He's going to be able to play all the majors this year if, he, if he's healthy. It already feels like more of a normal tennis season, and I'm really eager to get started. Yeah, and we are eager to have a full-strength team here at Tennis and Action trying to bring more spaces, more podcasts, and more digital writing. Before we begin our conversation, on behalf of Matt, Murd, and everyone, we want to extend our condolences to our good friend and Tennis and Action in-house you know, contributor, Andrew Burton, whose dad passed away a couple of days ago, and who's in England visiting you know, doing doing the right the rituals and whatever's needed to be with his family. So our Andrew's in our thoughts, and you can also reach him on Twitter. He made the announcement of himself that uh, he's back home. Uh, so yeah, again, that was a tough time for Andrew. He was supposed to be part of this, but as life happens, you know, these things sometimes these are bigger than what we do. But uh, back to the tennis conversation here, Matt. Uh, since we last spoke, I don't know, it's been more than a few months. I know you and Mert recorded a WTA year-end finals, and now here we are. Tennis's first major is about to start in less than 48 hours. And like you said, Novak Djokovic is back in Australia after a crazy year last year. You know, it was such a distraction from tennis, what he went through for himself. So we are glad that, you know, Novak is the man to beat. I made it clear on my tweets last year, even though Carlos Alcaraz deservedly held the ranking, Djokovic is clearly the man to beat almost in every tournament, maybe with the exception of Roland Garros, where he's a co-favorite just behind Rafa Nadal. So I think his biggest injury, the biggest concern for Djokovic is the hamstring niggle he's suffered uh, during, I think, the semifinals in Adelaide. Then he went on to play a classic match to beat Sebastian Corda. And he should be well-rested, hopefully, that injury is not an issue. And I think he, for me, he's a lock to win his 10th title here. I don't know, Matt, how much have you followed? You want to comment on Djokovic's recent win at Adelaide? If not, we can move to some other player that you have followed and then uh, continue discussing some big names. Well, I mean, so if we're going to start with a discussion of the men's draw, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't think Djokovic is an absolute lock. You know, as as you know, he gets older. You know, just just little niggles, as you mentioned. You know, they can become uh, bothersome. That that's just the reality of being an older tennis player. So I'd stop short of saying a lock, but I would certainly agree he is the heavy favorite, and he got a great draw. I mean, who in his quarter is is going to put up a significant fight? You could really just say who in his half. Like most of the action uh, is in the top half of the draw. And, and Djokovic, he he should be able to make pretty straightforward work of whoever's there. I mean, some people might say Nick Kyrgios, but, you know, Nick Kyrgios at Wimbledon and Nick Kyrgios at the other majors, it's not the same thing. And people will say, well, wait a minute, Matt, you discounted Kyrgios a little bit at the U.S. Open and he got closer to winning it than you thought. And, and, I, and I will admit that. I will admit that. But, you know, starting the year, fresh fuel tank. Uh, for Djokovic, like if, if he goes up against Kyrgios and he's in, in full form, uh, you know, just I, I'm not seeing it. I'm not seeing uh, Kyrgios finding the solution uh, on hard courts and being able to, uh, you know, pass the test against Djokovic's return uh, quite to that extent. I think Wimbledon, you know, it leveled the playing field a little bit more 
it's not going to be quite the same in Australia. Now you'll have a home crowd advantage if we, you know, do get to that match, which would be a quarterfinal. But still, like Djokovic is solidly, solidly better by a considerable distance uh, than, than Kyrgios if we get that match. So, you know, I, just everything is lining up well for Djokovic. And you know, let's let's keep in mind, big picture, that you know he didn't play a ton of tennis last year because of being prevented from playing. Lots of tournaments. So first off, he's physically, you know, fresh. You know, the hamstring might be an issue, uh, you know, and so like you never say never in terms of, you know, something cropping up. But, you know, in, ter- in terms of being able to recuperate, being able to uh, attack this tournament the way he wants to, you know, I don't foresee too many challenges. And of course, given the, the bitter nature of what happened uh, with the Australian government playing politics, uh, last January, you know that Djokovic very, very dearly wants to win this tournament and to sh- and to show that, you know, hey, it's not just winning this tournament, but it's also making the statement of, hey, if you allowed me to play last year in Melbourne, I would have won the thing too. So like there, there's that added dimension to this uh, for Djokovic. So I, I, he's he is the clear favorite, uh, but it's going to be great to see, you know, if these uh, – if the people who took center stage on tour last year, people like Casper Ruud, who is, you know, with Djokovic in that bottom half, could potentially face him in a semifinal. Um, you know, it, can these guys, when they get their chance to go up against Djokovic, what are they made of? Like, that's going to be a very interesting question just on its own merits. Whether or not they w- win or lose, that's its own separate question. But just like, how do we see the tour respond to Having Djokovic there for a full season, definitely a very compelling plot point at the Australian Open and throughout 2023. Yeah, I don't think I have much to disagree there. And like, I think you hit the nail in the coffin there. Djokovic, you know, is touching history every time he touches a racket. And, you know, with with the Grand Slam tally race between him and Rafa Nadal, you know, reaching new heights and... And to top to top that, you know, he's going for number 10 and whatever transpired last year, if he needed any extra, you know, motivation, this is the case. He's super motivated to play majors. He's made that clear in the last two and a half years. He's being more picky and more selective, of course, due to COVID, he couldn't play in the United States. And then his, you know, visa issue in Australia, I think, yeah, he's uh, definitely the man to beat. And he has more than ample reasons to just, uh, again, in his case, a player of his class doesn't have to make statements, but this is definitely a return to his favorite ground. And I don't see many stopping him or even taking him to the distance unless Djokovic, you know, niggle is a serious thing. And Nick Kyrgios, you're so right. I mean, he definitely looked really good after Wimbledon, you know, making the deep runs in Canada and uh, and New York. But uh, again, he's he's a part-time player. I was watching the Netflix documentary that came out i watched two episodes and for most tennis fans like ourselves there's really nothing new here it's clearly to get the larger audience to attract newer fans which i don't blame them uh, that was a goal of the documentary at least after watching the first two episodes and Kyrgios being the first episode so i think andy roddick called him a part-time player he said Kyrgios himself has called him a part-time player and he his withdrawal from uh, last minute withdrawal from the united cup where he was supposed to represent his nation. And then he was also speculated to play the second leg of the Adelaide 250. So he's nursing an injury. He says himself, 
that this is the best he's ever felt coming in Australia. He really believes he can win a major. And if you follow this Australian newspaper, Sydney Morning Herald, which I go check every now and then for cricket and during Australian Open, there's at least two articles on Kyrgios every day for the last two or three days. So he's definitely talk of the town. Now, like the, the million dollar question, is he match fit? Is he ready? Of course, mentally, he seems more ready than ever. But then draws is not, uh, didn't do him a favor because inform Holger Runa could be his round of 32 opponent. Granted, some might say Sakib Runa didn't win his first match this year. And still there's a lot of, he's a new commodity. We all, we all know, you know, he's 19 and even the sky is the limit for him, it seems like, but he still has to prove his way even by winning first two matches at a major. So that's a marquee match in that section. If both Nick and Rona make that far, that should be Rod Laver Arena, I think, at, at a night match. And then if if, if Kyrgios wins those that, that kind of a match, then yeah, his match with Novak Djokovic, a potential quarterfinal, granted Rublev doesn't have a say, should be a good match. But I'm with you. Uh, I just don't see him going that far. And if he does, I think on this code, Novak just has way too much game, unlike Wimbledon. But uh, Kyrgios is the ultimate X factor. And and I'm not surprised, like, I'm going to just deviate a bit why Netflix chose to follow him. He, of course, polarized the conversation. There's really nothing new to say there by folks like you and me. You know, his tennis, his, he has a lot of talent. We've talked about this. And he put a great year last year. But Matt, I would like to just share this with you and the listeners. In one of the spaces, I did say, I think, in US Open, that it's kind of amazing that he goes without a proper coach. And today in the documentary, they showed a practice session. His girlfriend is there with the cameras and his best friend. And I was really saying, wow, this guy is talented because in this cutting edge tennis where no quarter is given and with so many statistics, so many voices for top players, like entourages following them around, data being fed. Uh, Sometimes I think, you know, because Nick being Nick, I don't want to give him too much credit, but it's phenomenal that without a proper coach, this guy goes and wins 36 or 37 matches, makes a Wimbledon final US Open quarters. I think there was a time when I also believe his talent hype is a little too much. But to me, that has to be talent because the tour is such an unforgiving place. If you're not invested emotionally and physically and doing all the right things, you just don't crack like the top 20 and reach a Wimbledon final if you're not super talented. Not that many are contesting, but there's a commentary that goes around with Kyrgios that he's not, you know, doing himself any favors. I get that part. But at the same time, I think his talent just shines through this because I was just thinking, how is he doing this in this day and age without any proper, you know, coaching entourage? And now one of the key members, I think, who was representing him, I read in one of the newspapers, has parted ways. He's part of some Australian basketball organization. I think he was one of his managers. I'm forgetting his name. I just read that. I'll bring it up as the conversation goes further. But so that was the two big stories for me. Novak is the story. Nadal's, we have to talk about him. But Nick being in Australia, I think, is the story. And he's going to keep the audience engaged. And plus, he has a double title defense with Tanasi Kokinakis. So go figure. I mean, how the first week pans out for him. I I know you're I know you're wanting to get at uh, some some matchups in the draw, and and uh, I know that uh, our listeners here at Tennis with an Accent want uh, your view on a couple of the popcorn matches uh, in the first round. So we obviously have to start with Andy Murray, Matteo Berrettini, and also Aslan Karatsev against Grigor Dimitrov. Two very very highly compelling 
first rounders in the bottom half. So what do you say about those two particular first round men's matches? Yeah, I think the draw didn't do Murray any favor because, uh, you know, Murray has been steadily improving, but he's, you know, he's had, he wins a good match and he loses a tough match. So I think that's been the trajectory. Uh, so he could have drawn any other, you know, top player, many other top players than Berrettini, who, see, who seems to have found some of his form, I think, at the United Cup. And I was just watching in the documentary, there's an episode in Berrettini. If he plays anywhere close to what he was playing last year, I think it's a tough out for Murray. Even though Ivan Lendl has made the trip to Australia, that shows like, I don't know if this is a swan song for Murray. I don't want to put words out there. But Lendl traveling that far to an Aussie major, I think shows that they have put in the work and they mean business. And Murray has played five finals. I don't know if I'm going to give you the answer, but I think it is the first match that stood out for many. I'm picking Berrettini. Uh, but I've been wrong many times on this podcast before. I don't know how you see that match, Matt. I mean, you know, at, at the start of a season, you know, it, playing, you know, without having, you know, several months of legwork leading into the match, it's a different dynamic. You know, you talked earlier about Kyrgios, you know, having to, you know, kind of start his year all over again, as as all players are. You know, how you play in January when, you know, your off season just ended and you're kind of coming back to tour life. That's a different dynamic from how you're playing in August when, you know, you, you've, you've gone through Canada and you've gone through Cincinnati and come to New York uh, for the other hardcore major. It's two very different contexts. And I, you know, curious just to, to draw the, the comparison, like he had built up some momentum. He had built up, uh, a real, you know, feel good mentality. It's kind of like what Danil Medvedev did in 2019. All that winning just kept kept carrying through uh, to New York uh, for 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 Medvedev that year. Uh, you know, three three or just over three years ago, Kyrgios did that on a smaller scale, but like the collection of wins just kept reinforcing good habits, good reflexes, good instincts. At the beginning of a season in January, you know, maybe we can talk about what, uh, you know, the, the warm-up events in Australia or New Zealand might mean. And, uh, and I'm sure that they do benefit various players to certain degrees, but it's not the same, right? Like, we know that the Australian Open is unique in that it doesn't have a 1,000-point tournament, uh, you know, leading into it. There isn't a 1,000-pointer uh, in, in the three to four weeks uh, before the event, you know, that, that, that sets it apart. I mean, Wimbledon's also unique like that, but, but with the Australian open, like you don't even have a whole lot of real estate on the calendar uh, before Melbourne. It's just the, the few weeks uh, in Australia and New Zealand, and that comes right off the, the, the off season. Um, so, you know, that is a unique mental challenge. And so how, how that affects Berrettini, like, Okay, Murray's the old the old hand here. So like he he knows how to navigate that particular uh, challenge. Now, of course, you know Berrettini did pretty well uh, in in his recent Australian Open uh, showing. So like it's not as though you know he is uh, lacks credentials here. But you know when you when you come into a match like this, the, a, a really big showcase uh, early in the season, I think it kind of levels the playing field a little bit. Um, and just in terms of we don't know how these guys are going to respond to the challenges and the pressures of a new season. So it's going to be fascinating to see. 
I, I would certainly lean toward Berrettini, you know, because precisely because he, he has become a guy who, you know, you, he doesn't get picked off in the early rounds at majors. Like he has been a very consistent week one player at the majors that, that, that is a hard thing to bet against. Like Berrettini has earned the, the, the benefit of the doubt, but you know, th- that said like that, that streak, that run of week one, you know, avoiding upsets that could come to an end here. I mean, if, especially if Murray, you know, with Lendl there, you know, he might be really sharp, really on his game. I mean, so there are various scenarios in play. Uh, I don't think it's like Berrettini. I I would say Berrettini is a solid favorite. I wouldn't say heavy favorite. That's probably about how I calibrate the match. No, I think uh, that's a fair way to fair way to put this. Even though Berrettini himself didn't win a lot of matches, but then he, you know, he he had like a lot of injuries he had to deal with last year, stop and start season. So I think he did the hard work, and Murray was playing late into the fall. So, yeah, I mean, I think we both are saying the same things with a different, slightly different passage to it. And the uh, other match you mentioned is the Aslan Karatsev and Grigor Dimitrov. Grigor Dimitrov seems to be the mystery man for me. You know, the ship has sailed. That's the consensus for him to win a major, to even be making those kind of conversations. He's not in the outside circle. He's the outside, outside circle. But one thing is still there. If you follow carefully, if you're his fan, he still win a lot of matches that he should be winning. And that's a sign of a consummate pro. And Karatsev, after his like breakout season, has had form issues. He's struggling, you know, to put consistent weeks, uh, you know, which is the demand of the ATP tour. His ranking is going to go south. I'm picking, uh, I'm picking Dimitrov if they both are fully fit. Uh, so I think, uh, yeah, I think to me, it's a straightforward match. I think Dimitrov just has more in the, Arsenal more seasoned and you know he he just played more majors I think I see him I, I know they played a match here a few years ago which Karatsev won I believe on his magical run but I think Dimitrov is gonna level the head-to-head by coming out on this one and the All other right, match so go ahead yeah yeah we're gonna talk about Rafael Nadal in a little bit but but Sakib, I mean when, looking at the men's draw you know when it came out like that second quarter uh, of the draw in the top half, just, you know, it really jumps off the page because you have so many compelling figures in this one quarter of the draw. You have Sitsipas and Sinner both in the same uh, section. So that, that could be a round of 16 match. You have uh, Borna Chorich and Felix. They could play in a round of 16 match as well. So, I mean, and not to discount Cam Nori, or Lorenzo Musetti, you know, extremely talented. You also have Sarundolo in there uh, in that quarter of the draw. But really, Sitsipas, Sinner, Chorich, Felix. Like, those four players are all not just, you know, really good and they're they're threats to get to, to advance out of this quarter, but they're all highly compelling figures because they all have very uh, dramatic stories. You know, Sitsipas's rise and fall, uh, Sinner, you know, with the epic match against Alcaraz, which really, you know, gave us a taste of, you know, what could be over the next 10 years in men's tennis. You have Chorich with, you know, coming back from nowhere in Cincinnati, uh, but then stumbling at the U.S. Open, you know, and, and, and the majors remain his stumbling block that he, he can really turn it on at the 1000 point tournaments, but the majors just remain a hard uh, code for him to crack. 
And then, of course, Felix, who, you know, was winning anything and everything in the indoor uh, fall season. And could this be the breakout year uh, for Kid Canada? So, Saka, I mean, it's your pick of the crop here. Choose from Sitsipas, Sinner, Chorich, and Felix. Like, which of those guys, which ones are you really focused on? Do you think one has a better shot than the other at this tournament? Just uh, the floor is yours. I think you picked a very tricky section, Matt. So even though you were not following the game, I think you have a knack of coming back with, you know, you just look at the draw. You haven't lost, you know, haven't lost any touch. You know, it's like one of those old classics. No, you're absolutely right. I think Sissipas starting against Quentin Hallis, who's uh, a French player who's been on the rise for the last five years. I've seen him play qualifiers. He's a very respectable rank of, I think, 64 or 65. But that's strictly built on winning a lot of challenger event matches. He just got there the hard way. He's won like 10 handful matches on the ATB tour, but he still stands in top 65. And he played a great match against Novak Djokovic in uh, in Adelaide. It was two tie breaks and he matched Djokovic pound for pound, shot for shot. And if Hallis brings that kind of tennis on Monday uh, night in Melbourne, which is early Sunday uh, on the East Coast, I think Sissipas could definitely drop a set and it could be tricky. But I'm going to still go with Sissipas because he's made this tournament semis. He's beaten Nadal here. He's, uh, you know, he's lost to Daniel Medvedev in two of the semifinal appearances. This court just somehow suits him more than U.S. Open and Wimbledon, where he hasn't made a quarterfinal yet. Uh, yeah, I think he's definitely a player to watch out for. Philippoussis is back working with him. There's a lot of talk. Uh, I don't know when you were busy covering football. Jim Courier and a lot of tennis pundits clearly made uh, their views public that, you know, Sissipas needs to look out for a different voice. His his partnership in the coaching boxes, folks wasn't working. They were very vocal and you could see the tension between them. So I hope with the addition of Philippoussa, they have addressed some of these things. And Sissipas definitely can lean on a new voice like Mark Philippoussa, who himself is a two-time major finalist. <clears throat> so yeah, I think he's definitely a guy I'm going to back despite uh, his mixed bag of results in the second half. And he still had an outside chance of being number one till very late in the season. So that's the kind of a phenomenal year he had with all the ups and downs. So he's one guy I'm going to back. Felix Ojeal-Yassim is another guy who was in fire on the indoor season leading up to Bercy and uh, Turin. He won a few tournaments in a row, but outdoor tennis is where you know this is going to be settled. His trip to North America in, in the fall uh, wasn't good. He won five matches total. And one side, he lost to Jack Draper and a beat down to Casper Ruud in one of the 1,000 Masters. Despite that, I, you know, I like his chances to go, to go, to go at least you know, uh, further in this tournament. He's going to start against Pospisil. I don't see him being troubled against his, his countrymen there. Uh, Chorich is tough. I mean, you know, he won Cincinnati last year. But uh, we haven't heard much from him. He's solid. I mean, uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna say hold, not sell or buy for this tournament. But I I, I like what I see from Sissipas and Ojeal Yassim, uh in, in the larger pool of things. And and Yannick Sinner is someone again we all have been waking waiting for another breakthrough. You know, he made quarters of Wimbledon in Australia last year, lost to Sissipas, but then he lost to Seb Korda in in Adelaide. Uh, he got a niggle towards the end of the first set and then kind of went away. He didn't retire, but you could see his level drop in that against Koda. By the way, I would like to speak about Koda uh, as this podcast progresses because that was one of my main picks last year to crack the top 10 
and he's looking solid. I mean, I, I mean, his match versus Daniel Medvedev. I'm jumping brackets. I think that's match of the first week if both guys get there. Okay, now let me ask you about Seb Porta. Then let's talk about him. Uh, you were able to watch him. I didn't. I didn't get a chance to watch him, but you know, I remember the match against Karen Hatchinoff at Wimbledon. You know, the, the the match that went deep into the fifth set, and both guys were breaking each other's serves left and right. And you could tell that you know Porta, still being very young, you know, a couple of years ago, it, that that serve just wasn't didn't have enough oomph, didn't have enough heft. Uh, that you know it would with time, you know, if Cordes could beef up his serve, uh, that you know he has the fluid, graceful technique uh, on his ground strokes. Um, but you know, can that serve become a more reliable? part of his game. Did you, did you see evolution in Seb Porta's serve? That's what I'm most interested in. Yeah, I think uh, I, I saw some evolution for sure. Uh, he's definitely not double faulting like he was last year. And more than the Hachanov match, there were like four or five matches, including the Rafa Nadal loss in Indian Wells. Then I think Dusan Lajovic and Acapulco. And a couple of the matches, the four matches in a row, if I'm not mistaken, Seb Korda served for the match or was up a break in the decider and then ended up losing. So it has to do with serve issue with what you said. So Matt, I don't know. You need to promote one of the podcasts when you get back on tennis Twitter. I talked to USTA coach Dean Goldfein, former coach of Seb Korda and Erotic. And right now he's working with Ben Shelton. So we spent a good 20 minutes on that podcast with Korda. And I did my research and basically Korda is 6'5". I asked coach Goldfein. He's not lifting weights. Alex Ruskin came on the podcast for the same thing. With a frame of 6'5", he only weighs 177. And Zverev and Medvedev at 6'6", way close to like 190 plus. So basically, if Koda starts putting, hitting the gym, they were consciously waiting because he, he had a lot of injuries. I think he's going to grow into a beast. I think, like you said, his ground strokes are awesome. He has a great feel at the net. Uh, he's a pretty much of a natural like his dad. He has flair with the volleys. And serve looked okay to answer your question. Against Djokovic, his kick serve is amazing. It reminds me a lot of Marat Safin. I've seen a lot of Safin. The heavy kick, especially on the ad code, did someone like Novak a lot of trouble till Novak figured it out later. He had change of pace. So I think to answer the question, I saw some improvement, but at the, at the gun, speed gun, I'm still thinking he can go up to 135 plus. Right now, his best serves are in the 125, 126 range, but he's shown variety. He's shown kick. He's gone out flat. To me, he's the best American player with all due respect to Taylor Fritz and Francis Tiafo, potential-wise. I think there's easy talent for Seb Korda. But of course, I didn't envision the careers TFO and Fritz are having. I kind of thought like they might have hit their ceiling, but they are in with a chance themselves. So Korda is my guy, is the guy I'm going to back. And the way he played in Adelaide, I think he could be top 10, top 12 by August. You briefly mentioned Francis Tiafo, And of course, he had the amazing US Open run where you know Tiafo became the king of the tiebreak. Uh, just had that remarkable run of tiebreaker wins and, you know, Tiafo beat uh, Rafael Nadal and hey, Francis and, and Rafa could, could reunite uh, in the middle of this tournament if they get through their first few matches. So this brings us to Rafa. So I, I, I mean, the obvious point is he received a brutal draw, like, you know, Djokovic received huh, a very friendly draw and Rafa received a very harsh one. And, and Djokovic fans would say, and Hey, Frankly, they probably deserve it. After what happened last year in Australia, Djokovic uh, gets the gift 
uh, you know, after being denied entry into last year's Australian Open tournament. And of course, Rafael Nadal won. So, well, the price paid was this draw that he got <laughs> uh, in 2023. So, um, you know, how do we assess Rafael Nadal uh, entering this tournament? And, you know, it, it, to a certain extent, I mean, the fact that he won the Australian Open for the second time and he, get, he gets the double box set, you know, that was the particular achievement that he was chasing. So he finally runs it down in, in very dramatic fashion. Uh, I, I guess the, the, the starting point with Rafa Sakib is, you know, the clock's ticking on his career. And of course, you know, we saw his great friend and rival, Roger Federer, call it a career last year. So if you're Rafa, kind of an interesting spot, Sakib. Like, is, is there pressure, intense pressure, the way there's pressure for every Grand Slam event that Rafael Nadal plays, knowing that, you know, he doesn't have an endless stream of opportunities left? Or in spite of the fact that the clock's ticking on his career, is he just playing with house money at this tournament? You just kind of let it ride and, you know, hey, if I lose, well, that means I'm fresher for, the spring and, and, you know, uh, defending my title at Roland Garros. How, how, how do you look at this, uh, this particular uh, uh, Australian Open for Rafa? I think, Matt, we've talked about this many times and you've written about this, right? And I stand guilty as charged. I thought Nadal would have been done close to 2013, 2014, you know, and this is a conversation I had with someone in 2010 who's a big Rafa fan, went to Roland Garros from Boston just to see Nadal and me being the self-proclaimed tennis pundit you know, coming from the Becker era and Sampras era, I, I thought there's no way Nadal's going to last this long. Nadal's made me and many others look so silly. And he's continues to win on hard courts. We're not going we're not gonna to touch clay because that's his domain. He's become such a profound hardcore player. He knows how to win these matches. First reaction is uh, Draper and potentially Nakashima. The draw didn't do Nadal any favors. He has the absolute toughest draw. But you know what? With back against his wall, if he's healthy, like he's practicing good, he said he lost two matches at the United Cup. I think he may drop a set. I I see him get through the first week. I see Tiafo is another guy, like you know, who's become like this big match player, like a Vavrinka mini version. You know, people will say I'm getting ahead, but what we saw at the U.S. Open doesn't really mirror what else he does outside the Grand Slams. He's made a Vienna final here and maybe a semifinal here or there. He's just so scratchy, but the work is there with Bain Ferreira. So I think that's the big test for Nadal. You know, like he lost to TFO at US Open. I don't think Lightning's going to strike twice, all due respect to Francis. But Francis is a big match player. So I'm looking forward to that match. Uh, Nakashima can trouble him. Uh, so can Draper. I expect both these men to be seeded at a major this year. If not, maybe by Wimbledon, they both have a lot of potential. I think Nadal's going to come out sharp because, you know, this kind of a draw, he's just raring to go. Uh, how far can he go? I think that's going to be tricky because, uh, you know, like, I don't know, everybody's saying end is near. Of course, it is a lot nearer than it ever was. But if he's healthy, I think he's playing to win these majors. And if you stay clear of the fan bases, because, you know, there's always a comparison between the big three. Look, they're all champions. They all play to win. There's there's no drug-like winning. Yeah, of course, they love to compete, but they don't take these flights just to go compete and lose in a second round, Right. Federer, you know, was trying to beat Father Time. Nadal's going to do the same. He won two majors last year. There's no reason to believe he can't contend here. Um, yeah, I would love to see Nadal TF for Nadal, Nadal Korda, uh, you know, more than Nadal Medvedev. I'll go that far. But yeah, okay. draw is tough, but Nadal can deal with it, I think. 
Now you mentioned Medvedev. Now, you know, it's my personal opinion that Daniil Medvedev never fully recovered psychologically from the loss in the Australian Open final to Rafael Nadal. And, and, and attached to that thought is the, you know, uh, accompanying belief that if Medvedev had won that match, if he had held on, uh, that he would have had a big 2022, especially with Djokovic out of the picture at the U.S. Open and, and some other tournaments. But it didn't happen that way. So my question for you is a pretty simple one. A, well, it's it's a it's there's it's two questions really. One is a, do you think that Medvedev, you know, will use this Australian Open as the the, the moment where he picks himself back up, uh, you know, or you know, do you think that something has has been lost for Medvedev that uh, that he's going to struggle to regain? And attached to all of this, Sakib is, does Danil Medvedev need to play Rafa and beat him in the quarters in order to? really fully regain his belief in other words let's say uh tiafo or someone else takes out rafa before the quarters medvedev gets to the final he loses to djokovic you know do you think that getting to the final but not beating rafa would contain considerably less value than going through rafa to make the final Uh, so i know i've given you a lot of different questions there but i know that uh, you're up to the challenge Okay, I'll answer the last one first. I always believe, like I've learned from you and Murd and Andrew, you know, you can only beat the draw that's given to you. If he reaches the final, considering, you know, how his year went, there's some scar tissue from last year, losing that final, the two-set lead, then had enough chances to go up and win the trophy last year. And then the whole Russia ban thing didn't help. So, yeah, I mean, if he reaches the final losing Novak Djokovic, that's going to just you know, make him one of the best men along with Andy Murray to not win Australia, then he's going to be losing a third straight final. So I'm going to give him, you know, full marks there because, you know, you can only beat who is across the net. But yeah, beating Nadal, who's become such a matchup problem for Medvedev, the loss in Acapulco clearly was an extension of the loss from Australia. He had no answers. You know, his his flat ball hitting and just doesn't pose Rafa any problem. Rafa is so much better at offense than Daniel. So that match was a masterclass from Nadal. Yeah, I think everybody will be intrigued if they were to play in the quarterfinals. So, yeah, I think Medvedev would want that, but at the same time, he wouldn't mind if someone else takes care of Nadal uh, prior to that. And as far as uh, his season, I mean, I'll, I'll give you the chance to explain because I'm always intrigued in your analysis. And a lot of people have said that match had scar tissue that kind of lasted for so long. But I think we also have to factor in, uh, you know, not being played, uh, able to play Wimbledon again. And then Nick Kyrgios, you know, uh, had a couple of very good wins against Medvedev. You know, we would be talking a very different year if Medvedev had gone deep in US Open. He's still like a very formidable hardcore player. That's why the bookies have him as a second favorite. He's done well in Australia. Uh, I'm going to again sell my man Koda here. And Medvedev Koda should be a night match. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. If Koda just comes out and, you know, plays in a grand slam to his belief, that could be Daniil's big real test before he goes on, you know, to reach the second week. So over to you, Matt. So again, you, 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 you know, you write ten for, and cover sports tennis and beyond. So you think someone who's played four grand slam finals have already won one major. You think that blowing up that two set to love lead against Nadal could have that kind of a lasting effect 
that a career that was destined for like semi greatness. And now people are saying, will he win another major? Yeah. I, you know, in terms of the big picture, you know, will he ever win another major? I, you know, I think he'll get there. I think that, you know, in terms of the ups and downs of life on tour and, and also the reality that, you know, Carlos Alcaraz is showing some, you know, physical uh, limitations, you know, the, the injury he had that caused him to withdraw. And then of course, you know, he was injured late last season. You know, he, he really pushed himself. I mean, we're entering a very uncertain period. We're entering a very uncertain year. Uh, you know, Yannick Sinner, uh, f- physical health has been a persistent issue for him. Um, so, you know, how, what is going to be the staying power of the guys who, you know, newly stepped into the spotlight last year, or at least if they might have already been in the spotlight, but they certainly attained a higher level of visibility and centrality in the tennis world. So Sinner checks that box. Alcaraz checks that box. I know he's not in Australia, but like he's still, you know, when, when he gets healthy, like he, obviously he's going to be at the center of the conversation on the ATP tour. Casper Rude, after his really big uh, coming of age season in 2022, you know, how is he going to handle it? How are these, the, the guys who stepped up last year, how are they going to handle the fame, the success, uh, the celebrity, you know, all the things that go with being an elite player. Now, now they're going to be the hunted a little bit more heading into a new tennis season. And that dynamic uh, is going to be different. So where Medvedev fits into that picture, you know, it's uncertain, but I think that like he, there will certainly be a moment where things are going to line up in his favor. I mean, you know, he has, you know, he's not, uh, he's not in his thirties. Like, so like he still has time on his side and having done what he has accomplished, you know, there's going to be a moment where he's going to have an opening, but I think what's more interesting in the short term, like, in terms of his 2023 season, particularly this year, this one year, not the next three or four, but this one year, I think this Australian Open's huge. And certainly if he gets to play Rafa in the quarters, that becomes a season-shaping match for him. It's going to set a tone. Uh, it's going to either reinforce uh, the negativity that, that he carried with him for a lot of 2022, or he gets to shatter it and he gets to move past it. And then, you know, you're likely to see him really flourish. Uh, So uh, this Australian Open isn't so much uh, a career uh, defining moment for Medvedev, but I do think it's a year defining moment. I think it's a a season defining moment. And it's going to be really fascinating to see uh, how he handles the challenge. All right, Saka, we have a women's draw to talk about. But but before we segue to the women, any final big picture thoughts? on the men's draw and on the ATP tour. No, I think we covered a lot of uh, players who are going to be relevant. <clears throat> and Casper uh, Ruud, we talked about him. Uh, we are not talking about Alexander Zverev because I think he's still not there yet. Uh, I don't expect him to win more than two matches here because uh, that's not an easy injury to come back from. But with all the other favorites, I think we have spent uh, a deeper dive and talked about the chances. Novak Djokovic is the clear favorite uh, according to both of us. And uh, uh, Taylor Fritz, that's actually, that's one player that we didn't talk about. So, you know, you, you talked about his chance in New York and he had that surprise loss to Brandon Holt in the first round. He comes in, you know, part of the winning team that left to the United Cup. His his backhand, his ability to rally and play, you know, defense slightly and, you know, move better. Those were some of the Achilles heel that were keeping him from 
being in the top 10. Now next goal is top five. I, I, I wasn't a believer, but he's right in the mix. What do you think of his chances? Is he someone who can, you know, who can, how far can he go? I mean, a lot of people think he's the guy who's going to break the U.S. drought of winning a major. What are your thoughts of his draw? Well, you know, in the, in, I mean, you know, the, I think the draw is secondary with Fritz. And I think the loss to Brandon Holt at the U.S. Open kind of uh, confirmed that. Uh, you know, the, the big thing with Taylor Fritz is that in the last few years at majors, you know, he got that look at Djokovic when Djokovic was physically uh, struggling at the Australian Open. You know, that that match was there for him to win. It was right there. He had a chance. Then Rafael Nadal physically struggling at Wimbledon. Fifth set. He was right there with a chance with Taylor Fritz. Like there's going to be a moment where he comes up against an elite player. And he's late, he's deep in the fourth or he's in the fifth, and a match is right there waiting to be won. He needs to win that kind of match the next time it comes around. Because if he if he loses a few more of those without getting a win, you know, that that is going to create mental baggage. It's going to stick with them. It's going to reinforce the wrong responses and the fear and the trembling and the trepidation. He just he he just, you know, like there's no uh specific blueprint or plan it's just you got to do it you got to walk over the hot coals you know it's that it's that kind of a thing with taylor fritz you just have to answer the moment and it's just that that's how it has to be like there's no grand solution grand plan you just have to walk through the fire and get it done that that's really the reality for taylor fritz sure so let's talk about the wtm at uh we're going to take a leaf out of andrew's book is it ega in the field when you look at the Australian Open draw after her success in New York. Is she, I mean, she is the bookie's favorite to win and she probably is my favorite too and your favorite too, but how do you see? Is, is it her or the draw or is it more your WTA chaos can resurface where we can have new semifinalists? Are we yeah, approaching so, the territory? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, after Iga Sviantek's majestic 2022 season, you have to make her the favorite. Like she is the obvious favorite. Like you wouldn't, you wouldn't step up uh, before a crowd of people and say, well, I think that Ons Jabeur is the favorite. And of course, no disrespect is intended to Ons Jabeur with that statement, but it's just like, you wouldn't just say this in public. Like, of course, any player other than Iga Sviantek is the favorite. Like, you just wouldn't do it. But that, So that having been said, that Sviantek is the favorite, it's kind of a favorite just because, like, there's no alternative, Like, right? There's no, there's no logic in saying that anyone else is the favorite. But it's not the same as Djokovic in the sense that, like, I think Djokovic has a manageable path. Sviantek did not get an easy draw. Like, you have Coco Goff uh, waiting potentially uh, in the quarters. But before that, you could have uh, Daniel Collins, you know, who played in uh, Ash Barty's last major tournament final, an Australian Open final. Uh, Daniel Collins could be a round of 16 for Sviantek. That's certainly not easy. And you also, you know, Rabakina could play, uh, could beat Collins and, and become Sviantek's uh, round of 16 opponents. So that's a major champion as well. Bianca's uh, there. So, a- absolutely. Bian- so, yeah, Bianca's in, could be a third round match. So, definitely, you know, Sviantek did not get an easy draw. And really, the top, as you look at the women's draw, the top half, it's, it's a lot like the men. The top half is definitely the much more loaded half. Uh, than the bottom. So Sviantek wasn't done any favors. And I would make this specific point 
while Spiontech has not yet won the Australian Open, which, which by the way, I think is, is the best reason to think that she can win it because there, there's going to be a special hunger on Spiontech's part. Hey, I want to lock down the Australian Open. I haven't done it yet. This is a really significant tournament. You know, part of being great means winning everywhere at all the big tournaments. So, like, that's going to be a driver for Spiontech, and that, that enhances her chances. So that's good. That's the good part of it. But the 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 part of it that I'm concerned about, or maybe concerned is not maybe the best word, but just, you know, in terms of how the ebb and flow of a career unfolds and Spiontech, you know, obviously a very quick study, you know, she took all the hard knocks that she absorbed in 2021 and she translated those learning moments into the brilliant 2022 season that she had. But now, after having that brilliant season, is she going to unfurl a 2023 that's pretty much as similar uh, as 2022 was? That's really the question, right? That that really is uh, the the great unknown with Sviantec this year. And so, if you ask me, Sakib, is Sviantec going to have a 2023 that's right on par with 2022? I'm I would tend towards saying no. Like, I, I think that just for a young player, you know, you know, Djokovic is, uh, you know, established just to, to kind of draw the contrast here. Djokovic has been there, done that, you know, been through the wars so many times. Like, there's zero doubt about his chops, his mentality, how he's going to handle everything. And I think Sviantec, though, obviously already a superstar and destined for large scale greatness. Like, I think most people would say within the tennis industry, you know, she's going to win double digit majors. Like that's very likely to happen. Not a lock, but very likely to happen given her career arc, given how uh, intelligent she is, given how coachable she is, uh, you know, just given how skilled she is, you know, it's going to happen over the, over the larger March of time. But this year might be a year where she gets punched back a little bit by the tour, not a ton. Like she's not, it's not as though she's going to be uh, you know, outside of, you know, big semifinals at the majors at the 1000 point events, like she's still going to be right there in the mix, but is she going to have the big roles, the big surges of success that she had at several points in 2022? Chances are that probably isn't going to happen. And so for that reason, while Shriantek is, you know, the obvious favorite, I don't think we can assume that she's going to stand so far above the tour this year the way she did last year because she took 2021's hardship and she turned that into fuel for the things that she did in 2022 after the 2022 she doesn't have as much fuel i think meant you know psychologically holistically and i think that at some points along the way eh, she's going to have some modest dips like not, nothing huge nothing alarming but it, i think it's going to be hard for her to match the standard that she set throughout the 2022 season. that That's my precise point. So let me do a quick follow-up there. So I think you make some excellent points. So is that, uh, from what I hear, it's still on a racket, but you're saying that's her evolution because what she went through, she may just not have enough in the tank? Or did I also miss the fact that fields catching up, like, say, a Jesse Pegula, who literally took the racket out of Iga's hand in the United Cup, I think beat her pretty handily. So you think the competition is also like figuring it out or you think it's more the first point that where Iga may just need more time to get that kind of form because of season she had does take an emotional and physical toll. 
Well, you know, you, you, you raise an interesting player, Jessica Pagula. You know, she's the she's the queen of the quarters, right? Jessica Pagula made the quarterfinals of nearly every tournament that she entered. And she's going to be a very interesting player at this tournament. And in 2023, like her hometown Buffalo Bills, you know, going into the NFL playoffs, can Buffalo finally win the Super Bowl? So can Jessica Pagula finally get to a final of a major and win it? So like Buffalo was pursuing major championships in two different sports this January. Uh, and, and, and so uh, I, I mentioned Pagula, not just because she's a really good player and she's in the top five, but, you know, Pagula had a really good year in 2022, but she, her, her ceiling stopped in the quarters and semis of a lot of the big tournaments. Sviantec was often the person who uh, halted her run. And so Pagula is, it's not just Pagula specifically, but like you can find other players as well. Uh, Maria Sakari, another good example. Like they are going to be hungry this year, right? They're going to be hungry to take that next step in their careers. The next step that Iga Sviantek took in 2022, you have now in 2023, that next step dynamic, it doesn't really apply to Sviantek. Sviantek would have an amazing 2023 if she maintains. Like it would, it would be pretty bold and audacious to, to ask Iga Sviantek to actually go better and bigger in 2023 than she did in 2022. Merely maintaining her standard would, would you know, translate into another awesome year uh, and magnifying her superstar, her superstardom uh, several times over. But for the Pagulas, the Sakaris, uh, the Sabalenkas, the Caroline Garcias, like they all have they all have a ton to prove. You know, you know, they all made some significant achievements uh, in 2022, but like they're all in that mindset of taking the next step. And, then, and that's where Spiontech was 12 months ago in January of 2022. And she did take that next step. Um, but the fact that, that you have on tour, you know, I don't really, I, I wouldn't characterize it socket. And for all of us, uh, all those who are listening here at Tennis with an Accent, I wouldn't characterize it as the tour is going to figure Iga out. I think just the tour has a lot of energy. The tour is, has a lot of players who have so much on the line. And, you know, when you are on the throne and you are reigning, you know, unless you, unless you've been there several times and you know how to handle it the way the big three did uh, in men's tennis, you know, Sviantek is going to get, is going to learn this year what it's like to just be the, number one target heading into the start of a season. You know, she wasn't the number one target heading into January. That was Ash Barty. And of course, then Barty retires. And so like that actually really helped Sviantek. Uh, and then that's really an under-discussed point that Sviantek wasn't the target at the start of the season. It was Barty. Barty wins the Australian Open, you know, fends off all the challengers, uh, you know, at in Melbourne. And then so Sviantek was able to kind of fly under the radar a little bit. And then that, that upswing, we saw that in Indian Wells in Miami. And then she was off to the races uh, for the rest of the year. So Sviantek enters this year as the target that Barty was uh, 12 months ago. And I just think that dynamic of being everyone's target and facing a crop of good players who have so much to prove, you know, it's just that, that the, the, the amount of intensity that any pro athlete brings to the court 
each and every time she plays. You know, when you go through a full season, it's just a reality of life. You're not going to be able to play every match with the same level of intensity. Now, you know, the the really great ones, Rafa, Djokovic, like Rafa, of course, is legendary for having that same positive and locked in mindset and and, and being very focused. Uh, Djokovic having the legendary capacity to always dig himself out of trouble whenever an urgent situation uh, arrives. Doesn't doesn't matter what city he's playing in, what surface he's playing on. Djokovic finds a way to get out of that tight situation and win that bridge match at a tournament, which catapults him to the title. Well, so, you know, Iga Sviantek, like she hasn't mastered everything. She's mastered a lot. Like, like 2022 was certainly uh, a portrait of mastery, but, you know, to be able to answer everyone's challenge and, and to be that target, you know, that, that is just a, a, a thing that, She's going to learn about this year. Like she doesn't know everything there is to know about tennis. She's going to, this is going to be another classroom year for Sviantec. And that's not so much a negative. It's just really more about the ebb and flow of life on tour and life as uh, a superstar. And I think you're going to see, uh, you know, and we'll, we'll see if it happens at the Australian Open, but certainly over the course of the full 2023 season, you're going to see the Pagulas, the Sakaris. Uh, the Sabalinkas, they're going to have, I think, a few more of those moments when they break through, not so much because they crack the code, but just because, you know, when you when you look at playing with the same intensity all the time, I think that 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 uh, that balance, that equilibrium, it's going to rise for the tour and it's going to dip ever so slightly for Sviantec. But even as we know in sports, just the smallest dip. Uh, or or increase in intensity, focus, clarity, whatever you want to call it, that often decides very close matches at big tournaments. Mm, interesting. So there's a lot unpacked there, but I, I'm going to go back to a famous conversation you and I had with Mert, and Mert was advocating <clears throat> the rivalries a few years ago that's going to transcend the WTA into a different stratosphere. And Ashwari famously has retired. Naomi Osaka announced she's going to be a mom. Uh, and she's going to be taking some time off. And Bianca has, has been injured, hasn't really regained that kind of form. So the players you mentioned, not necessarily the times running out on Sabalenka, resurgent Caroline Garcia, throwing the young Coco Goff, Jesse Pagula. If you were to choose one player to have a breakthrough at a major, and the larger question is to have like a WTA-defining rivalry, who has the most potential in your view? if that person goes on and wins Australian Open or any major, and then it can be like between her and Iga and the game can have a rivalry. Who do you see as a likely yeah. candidate? Yeah. So, you know, we saw Alcaraz versus Sinner at the U.S. Open and so many of us in the tennis community, in the tennis world said, oh man, that could be the special centerpiece, linchpin level rivalry for men's tennis over the next 10 years. So if we if we make the comparison what's possible uh, on the women's side, I think it's Sviantec and Coco Goff. You know, they, they met in the Roland Garros final. And of course, you know, that was Goff's first rodeo. So like you wouldn't have expected Goff uh, to, to handle the moment brilliantly. And of course you have Sviantec on clay, you know, Poland Garros, uh, what, what became the 2022 uh, French Open. You know, that's, that is uh, Sviantec's cathedral, much as it's, 
you know, Rafael Nadal's Citadel uh, of, of, of championship glory. So like, that's not the place where you're likely to solve Sviantec if you're Coco Goff, you know, in a first major final. But just the fact that Goff made that first major final, just the fact that she got that far, like what a great learning experience. Her career is, is not, it's not on schedule. It's ahead of schedule. And so, you know, it's, it's hard to, to ignore possibility that Sviantec and Goff, uh, you know, could play in the quarterfinals here and that that could be the rivalry that takes off. And, you know, Jessica Pagula, uh, Garcia, Sabalenka, all very fine players, but, you know, Goff is, is so much younger and the way she competes, like this is not a new thought, but it certainly bears repeating with Goff that at such a young age, she understands how to compete. And, and I often make the distinction between how you perform and how you compete. You know, how you perform means the precision on your serve and the technique and fluidity on your ground strokes. And just, you know, can you hit the corners of the box uh, with, with your kicker? And, you know, can you just execute shots uh, really precisely? Like that's, that's something that like, you know, Philip Kohlschreiber can hit any kind of tennis ball. Uh, he can perform really well, but then you enter the, the other realm competition. You know, how do you handle scoreboard situations? How do you handle, you know, season defining tournament defining matches and moments? You know, how do you respond when it's 30 all three, four in the deciding set and Coco Goff at a very, very young age, he handles those moments better than, you know, the vast majority of players on tour. And so, you know, it's not that Pagula and Sakari and Sabalenka and others in the top 10 don't handle those moments well, but Goff handles them better. I think mean, I think it's very pretty clear that Goff handles the the, the really defining uh, tension-soaked moments in in big matches better than a considerable majority uh, of her peers. And so for that reason, that is why she, uh, to me, stands out as the player who could become the big rival to Iga Sviantec. And they're slated to meet in the quarterfinals. Do you see that match happening, Matt? Or you think, are there any possible disruptors from preventing either one of them getting there? Yeah, so I mentioned earlier that, you know, you have uh, Danielle Collins and uh, Elena Rabakina potentially for Sviantec. You mentioned Bianca Andrescu as well. Um, I do think that the path for uh, Goff is is even more manageable. And, and you know, we, we do need to note, just before we came on the air to record this podcast, uh, we learned that uh, Paula Bedosa uh, withdrew uh, mm. due, due to injury. And so she was in Goff's section, and now she isn't. So that takes away a particular threat. I don't know who's replaced uh, Bedosa in the draw, but that, that is an obvious threat that Goff no longer has to contend with. So in many ways, Goff has the better path to the quarterfinal, I ultimately do think, yeah, we will get that matchup. And it would certainly be great for women's tennis if we did. Yeah, absolutely. There's like so much upside to Coco Goff, who's clearly a work in progress. But even when you see her matches, you see, you know, she has the X factor. She also has the ability, I think, the star power that's going to bring more new fans to the sport. So yeah, I think that definitely is a marquee matchup if it materializes. And like you said, that could be the rivalry the game needs. So if you look at uh, other big names in the tournament, uh, Jesse Pegula, we briefly talked about, she's come of age. She's, you know, misconsistent. You know, she is knocking that door. 
and I have a feeling, you know, again, I, I think she has a potential to go all the way. I think in this tournament, I, I could be wrong, been again wrong a few times on this podcast, but uh, the way she was playing at the, at the Team Cup, I think she's someone who's focused. She's improving day by day and the career rank of three. That's pretty incredible. I don't uh, anybody saw this ranking like a few years ago when she started making her move. So what is her ceiling according to you? What have you seen? You think she has a weapon? She has a game to become like a winner of a tournament that lasts for two weeks? Or you think there's some something still uh, there that needs to be fixed before we start? I mean, she's number three in the world. I don't know. I don't want to say too much. Yeah. What's your, what are your thoughts? Well, you know, in, in, when, when we talk about her number three world ranking, we do have to keep in mind, and this is just the reality of the WTA tour after after Sviantec, that it was a very fluid situation. Uh, you know, we remember that Annette Contivate uh, was still world number two for uh, almost all of, uh, or, or, you know, for a significant portion uh, of the 2022 season because of what happened in 2021 in Guadalajara uh, at the year-end championships. So you had a number of players, Contivate being the foremost example, who were, you know, really high, highly ranked but hadn't been hosting big results uh, at 2022 tournaments just because they what they built up uh, in late 2021 was able to carry over into the year and you didn't have other players who were consistent enough um, to take over those spots. And, and so, you know, we've both talked about Pagula's consistency. That is what elevated her to number three. Uh, you could make a similar uh, case for Casper Root, like Pagula and Root, they both, you know, rose to top three positions on tour just by being relentlessly consistent. Um, but I, but obviously, you know, when you look at the men and when you look at Carlos Alcaraz's game uh, and you look at that U S open final uh, against Casper Root, and you also look at the fact that, you know, Root, you know, ran up against Rafael Nadal and didn't have answers in the Roland Garros final. And of course you have Djokovic now back in the mix. Uh, for 2023, you know, Root is clearly, uh, you know, outgunned by the big dogs uh, that that surround him on tour. And of course, if you have a Pagula Sviantek semifinal, it's going to be that similar dynamic where you know Sviantek just has so much more offense than Pagula does. She has so many more ways to win a point. And so, if Pagula is going to take that next step. Frankly, the, the the best and most honest answer is Sviantec has to lose. Uh, that that is how that is the most likely way for uh, Jessica Pagula to win a major title uh, in 2023 uh, or, or in the near future. Uh, but if she does have to go through Sviantec, it's really about offense. You know, can can Pagula play a more offensive game? Uh, you know, she it, relying on consistency and defense. Can can get you very very close to the top, uh, you know, for a lot of players. But you know, if you have to go through numero uno or another similarly formidable player, you have to bring something extra to the table. And so we'll see if Jessica Pagula has been able to add to her game uh, in the off season and and can bring something new to the court if she does play Spiontech in the semifinals. Sure, a potential matchup for Jesse Pegula uh, in a round of 32 could be fellow countrywoman Amanda Anisimova. You know, that's another name that we've talked about and many have talked about uh, who have a huge potential. So uh, are you a believer and, and, or you still think there's, you know, more 
uh, more there before she becomes a force on the tour. Are you a believer yeah. of the talent? You know that. So Pagula and Asimov would be an amazing popcorn match in the round of 32. And, you know, it's interesting that we've just been talking about Pagula's consistency and, and needing more offense. Well, Anna Samova, she's the inverse, right? She's exactly the opposite of Pagula in, in that her offense can be devastating and lethal and overwhelming. And when she's on, she's absolutely untouchable. But the consistency is the issue, right? So it, it, it really would be a, a tremendous contrast in styles. Pagula, you know, the queen of the quarters, just rock solid and reliable. And Anna Samova, the player who blows hot and cold, and, of course, we remember that she led Ash Barty three love in the third set of that Roland Garros semifinal in 2019. How would the story of tennis uh, the past three and a half years be different if Anna Samova holds on in that third set and denies Ash Barty uh, a trip uh, to the final uh, where, you know, where she wins her first major and then, you know, really her career takes off? Uh, and, 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 you know, she retires early, but like Ash Barty is a certified lock, uh, to be a member of the tennis hall of fame. How different is tennis history? If Anna Samova holds that lead and what was a very seesaw kind of match. So Pagula, Anna Samova, two compelling players in their own right, but that match, if it happens would be enhanced by the, the reality that you have contrasting identities and contrasts make for the, the richest uh scenarios and scenes in sports and so that would be just a tremendous match to have if it does happen sure so we don't have to go draw by draw or section sorry section by section sure. uh, i want your views on arena sabalenka you know vibes is something you know i seldom use but i have a vibe this could be her tournament uh, i know we've talked about her on many occasions she's you know she's a player who gets pretty emotional some might even say a head case, but there's no shortage of talent. But then there's also an opinion there's shortage of uh, or maybe lack of plan B. So you, you think we've come full circle to that conversation? She did beat uh, Sriantek towards the end of the season last year. Uh, does that kind of match have any momentum if the two were to square off? And overall, how much of a believer are you in Sabalenka's draw? Uh, you know, I, I I am optimistic about Sabalenka this year. And, you know, we had that conversation earlier about, you know, Sviantec poured forth so much effort to do everything that she did in 2022. Can she really replicate everything that she achieved last year in this new season, 2023? And so you look at a, a player such as Sabalenka, you know, who is just, she's, she seems to be just on the cusp of finally breaking through. You know, she came close to making her first major major final at the U.S. Open, but Spiontek stops her 6-4 in the third. So, like, she's right there. She's right on the edge. She's just a little bit away. And she's played Spiontek lots of times, uh, you know, late in, in big tournaments. So, like, it's all there. And it's just can she make that 1%, 2% uh, growth? Uh, you know, in her, in her evolution. And I, I think that at some point in 2023, she's going to take that next step and make a major final. Will she win? I don't know, because, you know, we don't know, uh, you know, the player that she'll, she'll face in the kind of the larger context uh, surrounding her. But like, she's the prototypical example of a player who, you know, is playing, ha playing fairly well, 
but has something more to give, something more to prove, something more to achieve. And just that's going to create a natural hunger that, and this is this is not a criticism of Sviantec, it's just like Sviantec has achieved so darn much so quickly, so early in her early in her career. Sabalenka, it's so much more natural to say, hey, I have not done something. I really need to do it. That's just a more natural form of motivation. I think that is going to carry her uh, to the next step at some point. Now, whether it happens in Australia, I don't know, but I will say, and this does lead us to, you know, discussing the bottom half of the draw. You have Sabalenka and you have Caroline Garcia in that bottom half. And, you know, the top half is stacked with, I think, more players who are capable of going all the way. Sviantec having the tough draw, Goff being in uh, Sviantec's quarter. In the bottom half, I think it's more of an open field, and that is where Sabalenka and Garcia uh, can really do some damage. So, like, I would rate uh, Sabalenka's chances of making the final here as being pretty good. Um, But, of course, it's just about being able to prove it. And, you know, the thing that I keep going back to when when I see Sabalenka play is that, first off, it's not just, uh, you know, being a little more, a little calmer, a little more uh, patient, but it's also just not being so negative uh, on herself. And I know that, you know, that there, that is a fine line and that, that being your own worst critic means that like, you really are driven to be the best. And so you know, like the part of that uh, self-criticism is good. Like it does lead you to not settle for second best. It leads you to not be complacent. It, it leads you to, always shoot for a higher standard, but, but that, that fine line, you know, between striving and criticism, it can often take Sabalenka into a dark place. Uh, even when she's not playing all that terribly, or when the scoreboard is not that bad for her in a match, she can still get really down on herself. And it's just having a little bit more equilibrium, a little bit more, just ma- a matter of fact, business-like approach. Uh, without quite the same level of emotional uh, spillage. Like she, she lets the emotion spill out a little too much and uh, it might leave her just a little bit short uh, at the ends of matches, just a little bit more emotional reserve uh, from Arena Sabalenka. And, and that could make the difference for her this season. Uh, I mentioned the, the other player that I'm really interested in at this tournament and also for 2023 Caroline Garcia. And of course, Saka, we remember that when she had you know, her big season several years ago, you know, she had that breakout at the WTA finals. And so she ended the year on a high note and like, you know, we, okay, so maybe Andy Murray was right that, that she really could rise to the top of the sport. So then she begins the next year and it wasn't the same. And that does get back to something uh, we talked about earlier on this show about you know, start starting a season is a different mental dynamic from catching fire in the middle of the season and having that regular match play rhythm and traveling from city to city and carrying what you do in one place to another. And it just can kind of uh, accumulate in a very great positive way. Starting a season can leave players flat footed. It also, you know, they're, they're also targets, you know, based on a strong finish the previous season, you're more of a, uh, you have that bullseye on your back and maybe you don't handle it well. So Caroline Garcia has been through this cycle before where she finished a year incredibly well with an amazing second half 
of a tennis season. And then she starts the, the, the following year flat. She gets caught, you know, wasn't able to adjust. Well, okay, she's been through that. So now how does she now handle it better this second time around? That's going to be a very fascinating and moreover important plot point for women's tennis in 2020. Sure, and we have to talk about the world number two and one of the biggest stories in recent times in tennis, the rise of certain Ons Jabor, uh, reached the US Open final, I think, in Wimbledon final. Is it true? And then yes. <clears throat> what do you think of her? Her chance in this tournament. She didn't play a lot of matches after the U.S. Open. She's played, I think, first week in Adelaide here. Uh, mixed results. Uh, nothing to write home about. But again, there's a lot of potential, a lot of variety. How do you see her chances coming in? Is she under tennis, if that's a word? Has she played? Is the lack of matches, you know, since U.S. Open be a factor to go deep here? Or you think uh, uh, once you have done it at this kind of a stage and if you're healthy, you you have the formula to repeat success? Yeah, so Ans Jabor pushed herself really, really hard in 2022. So the fact that she hasn't played a ton of tennis recently, first off, I think that's smart. I think I think that's a smart big picture decision for her. But I think the other thing is, you know, based on all that she achieved in 2022, she's going to enter this tournament thinking, and I think it's a good calculation on her part and the part of her team. She's thinking, you know, I can play my way into form in week one. Uh, if I, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to have a scratchy uneven match uh, at some point in the first week. But if I get through that, and of course I know how to compete really well, like you don't, you don't make consecutive major finals without really knowing how to compete and without really evolving in terms of your holistic game and your holistic approach to tennis. So I think, you know, Jabur made the decision that, Hey, I did a lot of heavy lifting last year. When, when I get to a, a, the Australian open, you know, I, I don't have to have a ton of tennis, under my belt, I can use week one uh, to kind of get myself back into shape uh, and then gear up for a run at the title uh, in the second week. So, I, you know, I, I, like I'm not concerned uh, about Jabur uh, entering this season in terms of, uh, you know, not not having as much uh, tennis, uh, you know, in, in the in the lead up uh, to this tournament. Uh, I will say that Sabalenka and Garcia, they have the advantage, or at least not necessarily the advantage, but like they have the added motivation of really having something extra to prove. And of course, you know, Jabur, she lost those two major finals. So of course, like there is unfinished business for her, but man, she rose so high uh, on the tour this past season. Like it, and it wasn't to the extent that Sviantec did, but still it was a considerable step up for her. So, you know, there's kind of a dynamic where, Shviantek or Jabur is Shviantek, but on a smaller scale. And so I look at Sabalenka, I look at Garcia uh, in the bottom half of that draw, and I'm just, I'm naturally inclined to think that, you know, there's just that little extra bit that Sabalenka and Garcia have to prove. And it's not so much that Jabur is lacking fire. She's a very fiery competitor. We know this. Uh, and of course, when she started that U.S. Open final so slowly, Against Sviantek, you know, we were counting her out early in the second set, but no, she broke Sviantek a couple of times and she she showed her fighting spirit and how dogged she is in terms of not giving up on a match, even when it's such an uphill battle and an uphill climb for her. So like she's a very fierce competitor. We know this. I mean, like she she is excellent in terms of the competitive arts, 
but I do think that Garcia and Sabalenka just have a natural organic situation, which lends itself to, you know, climbing a little bit higher uh, than Jabur will at this Australian Open. And Jabur is nursing a lower back injury. That's why she sat out the second week uh, of the Adelaide tournament, which is also a good thing, not never to play. Uh, not to play, not never, uh, before a major. A lot of top players do that. But she was low in matches, and I guess she entered, but then she decided to sit out. So hopefully she's healthy when action resumes in Melbourne. She potentially could run into Kaya Kanepi, you know, a, a giant slayer at slams. You, you you fancy that matchup for either player? I, I mean, you know, health is, is obviously a part of it. And, and with Kanepi... Uh, you know, there's always the possibility that she's going to be in form. She's going to redline and she's going to take out a, a top 10 player. She's done it many times before, as we know. Um, so, like, there's always that chance. Now, would I rely on Kanepi to do that? Um, you know, if, if Jabur is in reasonably good health, I think Jabur uh, takes hold of that match. I think I think it's important to establish. And, like, like while anything can happen on any given day, I think that Jabur in 2022 established that she deserves the benefit of the doubt when, when navigating these kinds of situations, you know, like Jabur begins this year as world number two. It's a very different world number two from Annette Contivate, just, just, just to draw the contrast. Like Jabur did a lot of heavy lifting uh, to get where she got Contivate. I mean, had an, an amazing run late in, 2021, but it wasn't quite the same as like a 10 month lift that we saw from Ange Jabur in 2022. So like rating her competitive chops, like I think that Jabur has accumulated enough moments, enough proving ground successes that I should give her the benefit of the doubt against Kanepi. Okay. So any other player you want to talk about uh, that fancies your, you know, your imagination for this draw, any anyone who has a year to prove. Uh, Benchich is a name that keeps coming up in our conversations. She's coming into when, the 12th when, seed. Yeah, when when's it going to happen? Like, like I I I, I kind of feel my think that I've I'm I'm kind of I don't have much to say about Benchich because like you know the talents there. You saw it at the Tokyo Olympics. Like you you know it's in there, but just when when will it rise to the surface? In many ways, it's kind of like a Caroline Garcia story. Like, you, you know the capability exists. Can she put it all together? Like, there's just not much more to say than that. Uh, I, I would just also just say that, um, at, you know, after a season in which Fiontech, uh, you know, at number one and Jabur at number two really established themselves, you know, from number three on down, you know, with Pagula being number three, like, you know, Pagula got again, Pagula got to number three by just being very consistent, quarter, semi, quarter, semi, uh, on a very consistent basis in 2022. It also means that, like, the a lot of other players in the top 10 ha- uh, got their top 10 positions without enormous achievements. And Maria Sakari is really a good example of that. And we remember that in 2021, uh, at Roland Garros, Sakari had match point in the semifinals against Barbara Krajcikova and couldn't couldn't close it down. And, you know, like 2021 was the was the year of the Greek tragedy in Paris. Right. Because both Sakari and Tsitsipas played great tournaments, came so close to winning the whole thing 
and they have not been as good since those moments at Roland Garros. And so Maria Sakari is another player who I'm going to be looking for in terms of, you know, can she pick up the pieces uh, and not only, you know, take, take a next step in her career, but just, just show uh, that, you know, she, she can, she's learned from a lot of the difficult moments that she had uh, in, in 2022 in many ways, like, can she be, uh, can she learn some lessons from what Iga Sviantek did? You know, because Sviantek had a lot of hard knocks in 2021, translated those into the great 2022. Can we see that pattern with soccer? Now, like, I'm not predicting this, all right? And I, I wouldn't, I don't think I'd say under any circumstance that soccer is going to collect achievements that are remotely close to what uh, Sviantek did. But, you know, can soccer at least get to a first major final? Can she, you know, Get, take that next step at a major tournament? Can she make more semifinals uh, at, at the bigger tournaments? Because uh, she had a number of flameouts in 2022. So she's also going to be uh, a player worth watching this season. So let me do a follow-up in comparison how our conversation had been on CC Pass and Zverev, how the clock's ticking for these guys. Sakri is 27. Is that ship beginning to sail or you think it's kind of a different... Uh, barometer for WTA, you can have a late bloomer surprise, you know, uh, and go win a major. So what's your verdict on that? Well, you know, so in the, it's, it's really a simple answer. Uh, I've given a lot of long rambling answers on this podcast, but this one's a simple one. Like in the ATP, as long as you have Rafa and, and Novak and they're still formidable and they are, um, you know, that's, that's a real roadblock for Sitsipas and Sitsipas and, and also Zverev like they find themselves boxed in between Rafa and Djokovic right now, and then Alcaraz, Sinner, and 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 those uh, younger players who are coming up. Um, Sakari is not boxed in the same way. Now, like let's imagine a world where Serena Williams or or you know let's say Naomi Osaka. Let's say Naomi Osaka had remained a hard court major tournament giant, and you know. Obviously, uh, you know, her own life path has taken her in a very different direction. But let's 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 deal with that hypothetical. What if Naomi Osaka, you know, was was ruling women's tennis and or at least sharing the 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 throne in women's tennis with Sviantec? Uh, You know, let's imagine that world. Then you you might be in a really uncomfortable position if you were Sakari or Sabalenka or Garcia. But really, you're, you're looking at this and you're saying, hey, if I'm drawn on the opposite half of the draw from Sviantec, like I can make the final and I can compete uh, for big titles. So I don't think the clock is ticking with Sakari just yet or not with the same level of urgency. I think it's, more, it's less about the clock ticking and it's more just about taking all the painful experiences I've had, all the difficult moments I've had over the past year and a half and translating them into success, which is what Iga Sviantek at a much younger age was able to do last year, taking all of the difficulties of 2021, all the bumps and bruises and the, 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 the hard lessons of life on tour, Sviantek was able to channel all of that into her best tennis. So it's less about the, the clock ticking, more about just learning from your hardships and putting the pieces together within a tennis season. Okay, so let's wrap this conversation up. And you did give a lot of good detail answer. You didn't ramble. But you did mention one common theme in most of the WTA explanations was 
Iga Shurantik was the name when the question was not about her. So that kind of reminds me of the ATP from 2004 to 2006, when it was all about Federer. You talked about Hewitt, you talked about Safin, you talked about Gonzalez, you talked about Roddick. Federer crept into the conversation. So I don't know if you were doing it consciously, but every time I asked you about a player, you did mention Iga Shriantek. So that goes back to the point. It's her tour to run right now. So how badly do we need a rival? And, uh, and, and, and you are cognizant of the fact that every question, every response, you, you can't put a blind eye on her. She is there. Absolutely. And it's just a product of the fact that she distanced herself from the rest of the tour. And that's really the kind of thing that we hadn't really seen quite nearly as much when after uh, Serena Williams became a mom uh, several years ago. And you know, we went through a period where, you know, Naomi Osaka was dominant at hardcourt majors for a time. But other than that, like majors felt very, very uh, wide open, uh, certainly on the natural surfaces at Roland Garros uh, and Wimbledon. And, you know, so Ash Barty. Uh, you know, really became that 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 dominant player. But, you know, as soon as she became that dominant world number one type figure, she stepped aside. So, like, we haven't had that steady, continuous uh, presence of greatly distancing herself from the rest of the tour. I mean, Osaka, you know, distanced herself on hard courts, but certainly not on, over the course of a full calendar year and all three surfaces you know, on a, on a consistent, unending 10-month uh, basis. Well, that is that is what Sviantec was able to do, or at least come very close to doing uh, this past year. So when you distance yourself from the field the way Sviantec did, yeah, you are going to be, be that centerpiece of just about every conversation. You're going to be that common point of reference, which it definitely came up in, in my answers tonight. Hi, Matt. Welcome back. This is a great show. Uh, we decided to do a 45-minute show, but we, <laughs> we, you know, 45 minutes wouldn't do justice when you and I got back together after a while. And you're right, Djokovic and Iga Sviantek are the center of conversation. And Nadal's also a big part of the conversation. The first ball is going to be hit less than 46 hours from now. We'll drop this podcast soon and let us know what you have for a feedback. And Dennis Max and Matt will be writing throughout this fortnight that's the plan right yes we will yes we will all right so there you go matt's back we'll do some twitter spaces there'll be another podcast or two and then there'll be a lot of digital ink content coming from this team thank you for listening and thank you for your support and let's begin to enjoy the 2023 australian open down under bye for now sakib and matt signing off <laughs>